Today on the Dominic Inyart Show, in preparation for the upcoming Open Theism debate, we're going to be taking a look at the basics of Open Theism. God is alive and he is eternally free. We look at some verses which give us the privilege of peeking into the mind of God himself. Wow, all of that and more today on the Dominic Inyart Show. Greetings to the brightest audience in the country and welcome to the Dominic Inyart Show. Will Duffy, pastor of Agape Kingdom Fellowship, AKF, has a debate coming up I'm excited for. And every time one of these debates pops up, I start thinking about theology and I run through the arguments for and against various positions just in my head. And so if you're new to the show... We are big-time proponents of a doctrine called open theism, and we've been talking about it all week. And defining open theism, it can be a little bit tricky because open theism is a very broad issue, and it's a very broad beliefs with a lot of different aspects. It has to do with God, the nature of time, the nature of foreknowledge, with salvation, like soteriology, how are we saved? It has to do with free will, the free will of man, and then most importantly, the free will of God himself. And I'd like to point you to a website I've done a lot of work for, godsfreewill.com, which lays everything out. We'll have that linked to on today's show summary. So open theism, it talks about a lot and I'm, I'm going to attempt to define it in two sentences. That'll be tricky, but I'm going to give it a shot. And I got this mainly from the late, great Bob Enyar and uh, longtime listeners. You can be a judge if this is a good definition or not. So two sentences. Here we go. Open theism is the Christian doctrine that God exists within time, that he is alive, eternally free, and inexhaustibly creative. Because God is free, the future must be unsettled and unestablished. So open theism, part of why it's such a broad topic, is because it's very heavily debated. And there is very little agreement in Christian circles about the nature of God and time and foreknowledge. And since it's so hotly debated, that naturally makes the topic expand. But I'd like to point to paint a little roadmap for us. Typically, when people think about this debate, they think in terms of Arminianism versus Calvinism. And you have the Arminians on the left and the Calvinists on the right. And those two sides are in a heated eternal debate that will go on forever, or at least until we see the Lord. And their debate, it kind of goes something like this. Well, how does God know the future? And the Arminian says, well, God looks into the future. He probably has some, I don't know, some crystal ball-like power that allows him to see into the future. And that is how he knows it. And the Calvinist says, well, God planned out the future, and since he planned it out and is bringing everything to pass, that is how he knows the future. And that is how most people perceive the debate. And now this little roadmap that we are drawing in our own heads, I want you to circle both of those two ideas and push them off to the right. And then to the left of those, we can add in open theism. And open theism says, 
Hey, well, what about all the times where God indicates the future is not certain at all? And hence, open theists, we have earned the name open viewers, because as open theists, we believe the future has not already been determined, or it has not been set in stone, and we have an open view of the future, and we are open viewers. The, the Calvinists and the Arminians, they are called the settled viewers because they believe that the future is already determined. It is already set in stone, and so they have a settled view of the future, so they are called settled viewers. And I want to jump into the nitty-gritty here in a second. Uh, before we do, I mentioned the upcoming debate. It's between Pastor Will Duffy of Agape Kingdom Fellowship, and Chris Day. Chris Day is a longtime believer. He advocates Calvinism. He's a podcaster. Smart guy, really, really sharp guy. And they are going to be debating this Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Time. It's Will Duffy versus Chris Day on the Explore Christianity YouTube channel. And the topic of the debate, it's not just open theism debate, there's a specific question, which is, does open theism best explain the biblical data? And it will be a great debate, and I'm excited for that, and we will have that embedded on our website at kgov.com, kgov.com. So if you guys don't want to go through the hassle of finding it on YouTube, it will be on our website all week. And so open theism, I said I'd start with my definition. Open theism is the Christian doctrine that God exists within time, that he is alive, eternally free, and inexhaustibly creative. And that part, God exists within time. That makes a lot of people really uncomfortable, that God is not outside of time. Man, people, people really hate that. They really, really do not like it. And so I figure, you know, we could probably start there talking about open theism. And there are other, as I was saying, this is a very broad topic. So there's a lot of places you can start, but this is as good a place as any. And um, so God exists within time. Now, why, why is it that settled viewers hate that so much? And well, I would like to try and give an answer for them. And um, I've heard a lot of Calvinists and Arminians talk about this, so I feel like I am not going to strawman them here at all. I'm going to try and be honest to uh, present their position. And there is a philosophy that states, and this isn't necessarily a Bible teaching, this is human reasoning, which I'm not necessarily against human reasoning as long as it doesn't contradict with the Bible, but there is human reasoning which says that anything that is perfect cannot change. So, for example, you have a perfect circle. You know, you see videos every now and then, right, of like a so-and-so who draws a perfect circle. And it, it's very satisfying to watch. They just whoop, circle and it's perfect. And if any part of that circle were to be changed, it would no longer be a perfect circle. And that's their logic. So anything perfect cannot change because otherwise it would be changing from being perfect to no longer being perfect. And that is their logic. And so God, if God is perfect, they believe that God cannot change. 
And pretty much all philosophers agree that if God is inside of time, that would mean that he is able to change and that he is changing. And because, you know, if you're inside of time, you're growing, you're getting older, for example. And if you're getting older, well, hey, that's a change. Changing from 87 years old to 88 years old, that is a change. And anything that's perfect cannot change. Therefore, God cannot be getting older because he cannot change. God, so God must exist outside of time. He cannot exist inside of time. But there's a big problem with this. There's actually a few big problems with this. First, it's untrue that anything that is perfect cannot change. That is not true. If you're playing tennis and you have the perfect shot, everything about the situation is changing. Your arm swinging, it's changing location in space. The spin on the ball, the ball is changing. The speed of the ball, it's changing. The placement of the shot is changing as you're swinging. It's all changing and it is the perfect shot. And if it's not changing, it's not a perfect shot. How about God's perfect creation? The planets orbiting the sun, changing in location constantly. If you have a perfect seed, it will sprout into a healthy plant. You see, in many cases, change, it's not just part of perfection. It's actually necessary for perfection. As Winston Churchill said, quote, to improve is to change. To be perfect is to change often. And so that's the first big issue is that change very often is necessary for perfection. But secondly, the Bible describes God as a God of constant change. And we can look at the obvious minor examples before moving on to the majors. Baby Jesus was born in a manger. In Matthew 2, we can read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then so Jesus was a baby. And then Jesus changed as he grew into a boy. Luke chapter 2. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So he went from being a baby to being 12 years old. Then eventually Jesus changed into a man. Jesus changed from not having nails, nail holes in his hands to then having those nail scars. In John 20, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it to my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And it was change that caused Thomas belief. Now, a lot of settled viewers will say, oh, but that's actually God's, his human nature, not his divine nature, not his godly nature. And it's really quite lame. They skirt around the issue. They try to add this distinction of, it's a dissection of the second person of the Godhead in a way that he really should not be dissected. First of all, the Bible doesn't say that God the Son had a divine nature separate from his, his human nature. Rather, in Colossians 2.9, Paul teaches about Jesus. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
Paul here is going as far as to say that the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in his body. Wow. So aside from the nature of who God is, just in a physical sense, yes, of course, God changed. God changes constantly. Now, what's more so is that it's not just the physical side of God that changed. Of course, that's part of it, but there's more, and we'll get to that. And it's slightly sad that we have to get that to that other stuff, uh, because just that in and of itself is enough to prove that, that God changes. That settles the debate. However, the settled view loves to dance around the topic, and they'll say things like, oh, well, God is outside of time, but he's able to enter into time, and when he enters into time, he humbles himself and is able to change. And somehow they think, th they think that that fixes their problem, but it doesn't. And why not? Well, two reasons. One, when God enters time, according to them, that God enters time. I, I don't think God is entering and leaving and entering and leaving and entering, leaving time constantly as they say he is. But as, as they say he is, when God enters time, that is a change in and of itself. It is not being in time, changing to being in time. So even the part of God that is still outside of time went through a change. It's bizarre, confusing stuff. It's a little bit making sense of insanity. It's not really possible. And then two, the part of God that is inside of time is changing even according to them. And so what? Is the part of God inside of time not perfect because he's changing? No, absolutely, he's perfect. And, you know, they'll say, well, oh, well, he humbled himself and he, he cast away many of his attributes. It's like, well, yeah, first of all, that, that's change. And second of all, him humbling himself, you're implying that that change made him less perfect according to your own logic. But in reality, him humbling himself, that is not him making himself less exalted, but that is exalting him even further. But so they skirt around it and say all this, and I don't want to be rude because there's a lot of these settled viewers who are really sharp people. Really, I mean, I do mean brilliant people. But in my opinion, the distinctions that they draw are really, they're kind of wacky. In debate one time, I was talking to this Calvinist, we got into a little bit of a heated argument and I forced the Calvinist into a corner and I forced him to the point where he said, Jesus is 100% not God. Jesus is 100% not God. That's what the Calvinist said. He denied the deity of Christ to uphold his own Calvinism because if Jesus was God and it's, it's obvious that Jesus changed. So no, no, Jesus can't be God according to the Calvinist. And now in, spirit of fairness, what the Calvinist said, he said, uh, Jesus is both 100% God and 100% not God, which is self-contradictory, of course, but that's what he said. And I, I took out my phone and I said, I'm going to quote you and date this quote. And I, I did. And so that, that's how I know I didn't represent, misrepresent it later. And he was fine with it. I, I wrote out the quote and I showed it to him. I said, is this, does this accurately portray what you have to say? And he was fine with that quote. He accepted that. He said, yes, I said that. That is my quote. And then thankfully later he retracted that and he said, oh, that, that was not correct. But it shows you the lengths that they will go to if they want to uphold their own 
doctrine of timelessness. And I, I don't know if I specified earlier, timelessness is the belief that God is outside of time. And this is supposed to be a open theism basics show. Basics, ha. <laughs> uh, complicated basics. But so that argument for God being inside of time is obviously true, that God, the Son, he experiences change in the physical universe. Uh, that obviously is enough to prove open theism. But theoretically, that might not be persuasive to the settled viewer. And so you have to v dive a little bit deeper into the more complicated uh, material. And, you know, they'll say that human, the God's human nature is changing, but not his divine, yada, yada, yada. They aren't persuaded. So what are we going to do to have a fruitful conversation? Well, furthermore, we can look at God's knowledge. We can look into the mind of God himself. And isn't the Bible an incredible thing? Is it not astounding that we can read the Bible and peek into the mind of God himself. Wow, that that is mind-blowing. We take that uh we take that for granted a lot. But it so we can look into the mind of God and that is wonderful. And so if we if we do that and we look into the mind of God and see change in his mind, that's that's powerful evidence that God is changing and if he's changing then therefore he is in time. And so what would be some evidence um, some or some examples rather of God's mind changing. Well, if we were to look into the Bible and we see that God, <laughs> he changes his mind, <laughs> that, that would be pretty powerful evidence. You know, if God learns something, that would be supportive of the idea that God changes. If God is surprised by something, that would be evidence that his mind is changing, things like that. And so we can uh, we can look and see what the Bible says about God's mind, and does it change? And I would argue that there are examples all over the Bible. We could just look at a few here. Uh, from Jonah chapter 3, Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Wow. Oh, that's crazy. If you're familiar with the story of uh, Jonah and Nineveh, Jonah go goes and he warns, in 40 days Nineveh shall surely be overthrown. And then the people of Nineveh repent, and then 41 days later, the city still stands because God repented. He did not destroy Nineveh. And uh, by the way, there's a lot of Calvinists who say that when Jonah was prophesying that he was being sinful and that he was not conveying the message of God, which is completely debunked because right here in Jonah 3, then God says, I did not do that which I said I would do. Not, I did not do that which Jonah said I would do, but I, do, I will not do that which I said I would do. And by the way, God repented there. That's what the verse says. Uh, the repented is the Hebrew word necham. And I don't know many Hebrew words, so when I do know one, I like to show off about it. I like to brag a little bit. But the Hebrew word nakam, which means to repent, not necessarily to repent of sin, especially not in the cases where God is repenting. God is not repenting of sin. God does not repent like a man. Um, but So he's not repenting of sin, but he's repenting in the sense that he is turning away from doing what you would otherwise have done. Nakam is to change one's mind. 
Also, Jeremiah 18, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent, repent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon, not even which I said to bring upon it, which I thought to bring upon it. And this is another example of the Bible allowing us to peek into the mind of God. And God here is saying he will repent of what he thought he would do. Wow, that is cool. God is not ashamed of changing his mind. And there are so many verses like this where God changes his mind. And he, does, he doesn't have a care in the world about, you know, oh, not being perfect because he's changing. You know, God, that's not what God is thinking about. And this is the message this is the picture of God that you get when you let the Bible speak for itself. Now, settled viewers will say, you know, oh, these are just, oh, they're all figures of speech. And then they love, they love, love, love to throw this word around. They love to say, oh, it's an anthropomorphism. Oh, big, scary, you know, big word. And uh, sorry, Calvinists, I, I've got to give you a hard time about this one. Uh, I'm, I'm poking you in good fun here. They say an anthropomorphism is a figure of speech in which God is using human language to communicate ideas so that we can understand them, but they actually have a deeper meaning. That's what the Calvinists love to say about all these verses where God repents. And so these, these verses that explicitly say, you know, God repents, uh, the settled viewers will say, well, that's a figure of speech. And then you might ask, well, you know, figures of speech, they mean things. If you say, I could eat a horse, that means you're really hungry. So what is the figure of speech God repents? What, is, what does that mean? And uh, they say, well, oh, when the Bible says God repents, that's a figure of speech, and it means that God does not repent. Wow, I'm, I'm kind of taken aback by that. <laughs> Why doesn't the Bible just say God doesn't repent? If you ask that, you'll get one of two responses. One, they'll say, well, language is unable to describe such a complicated thing. Language itself is not able to describe the idea of God not repenting. And so that's why it's written this way. And the, the response to that is, so you're saying the biblical authors were not able to describe your position, but you are smart enough to describe your position. Because the settled viewer, they will describe their position, but then they will say that language itself stops the biblical authors from describing their belief. And if you are extremely lost by this point, you are not alone. That's not actually something that makes sense, And but it is what they say. The second response they'll give is they'll say, well, it's such a complicated idea that the Bible is using words that we can understand to convey the message. Which, you know, if I wanted to convey the idea that God does not repent, I, I would say God does not repent. That's how I would phrase it. Um, but the Bible phrases it God repents, apparently, to convey the idea that God does not repent. So in other words, uh, they think that the Bible thinks they're way too stupid to understand adult talk. And so it condescends to us and uses baby talk. But in reality, the settled view viewers are smart enough to understand the adult talk. And so the Bible was wrong for thinking that it needs to use baby talk because they can actually understand the adult talk. So the, the settled viewers are kind enough, enough to explain the adult talk to us. <laughs> and 
It's it's a little it, it doesn't make sense, but that is what they say with these an- anthropomorphisms with the figures of speech. They again, what they do is they dodge the heart of the argument. They they dodge the meat of the argument, and they will not take it head on. And it's like nailing Jello to a wall. Uh, it's it's difficult, right? Not necessarily because the jelly is so firm and resistant, but because it breaks down so easily and it slips all over the place. That's why debating Calvinists and Arminians can be tricky. And so here's a kicker. There's a lot of kickers, but here's just another kicker in the, in the list of kickers. Genesis 6 says that God is sorry that he made man. He's sorry. Let's read this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And they'll say, oh, well, that's a figure of speech. He's not actually sorry. That's a figure of speech. And well, we know that it's not just a figure of speech because not just did God say that, but he later took action to back up his words. So the Lord said, I would destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Then Genesis 7, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And that was the global flood. God took action to back up his words. What then? Was that action? Was that a figure of speech? The global flood didn't actually happen? That was just a figure of speech? All those who died, that was just a figure of speech? So, of course, the Bible says that God changes his mind. It's constant. He's constantly changing his mind. And these settled viewers will fight tooth and nail on every point and slip and slide. But they just they can't defend the idea that God does not change. And, you know, so we see God changing his mind. That's that's good evidence that God changes. But while we're taking our little peek into the mind of God, what if God learns something? And a lot of Christians are very uncomfortable with that idea. But the Bible doesn't seem to be to share their discomfort. Uh, again, to Luke chapter 2, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Wow. Well, that's that's pretty powerful. How about in Genesis chapter 22? And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And it's funny. Christians will say, they'll say that, oh, when God said, now I know, he actually meant, oh, Abraham, now you know. That's what he meant. So he, he, he misspoke, I suppose. See, settled viewers unintentionally accuse God of not knowing how to speak. See, for me, it's it's very easy to say, now you know. That's not difficult for me to say. It's, it's three words. It's not complicated. But the settled viewers act as if God, he, he doesn't understand language clearly enough to say, now you know. He doesn't understand how to communicate mes- messages clearly. And a good question to ask a settled viewer 
is let's say God wanted to convey the message that he did not know something before, but now he does know something. How would he convey that message? And the settled viewers, they do not like that question because the answer is, well, he'd probably say something like, now I know. Hebrews 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Wow. It's clear that Christ learned. And also, as we saw there in Luke, in that Luke chapter 2 passage, his relationship with the Father changed. And wow, that Hebrews 8, Christ learned obedience by the things which he suffered. I don't care who you are, that's powerful. The, uh, it, yeah, it's undeniable. The author of Mere Christianity, Hero, I've got an excerpt here. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you know the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find the strength of a wind by walking against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would, what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he is the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. C.S. Lewis. So, wow, Hebrews 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by which the things he suffered. Wow. And uh, we are over time here. Um, but we mentioned that if we ever see God being surprised in the Bible, that would be good evidence that the mind of God is changing. So I'd like to go a little bit long and cover this. So some more context for this next one. The worshipers of Baal, they would sacrifice their children, their own kids to Baal. And the way that they would sacrifice them was by taking a, a metal beam and placing it over a fire so it got very hot. And then they would place their children on the beam, little babies who couldn't crawl, and they would watch them slowly sizzle to death. That is how they would sacrifice their children. And some Christians say that God decreed them to do that, that God ordered them to do that, and that that originated in the mind of God, and that God is the author of that. And when you hear that Christians say that, what, what do you think? What, what's your initial gut reaction to that? Do you think that God, do you think that he authored that? Well, let's take a look at what God himself, what he said about that specific sin. Jeremiah chapter 19. They have also built high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. God here is saying, wow, I, I knew they'd be bad, but this is ridiculous. And God isn't, he, he isn't ashamed to say something didn't come into his mind. And he isn't ashamed all throughout the Bible to say that something surprised him. 
Settled viewers are ashamed of that, but God himself, God is not. God is hopeful. And by the way, Calvinists, they reject the idea that God is hopeful, and they have some level of discomfort when people say God is the God of hope, and they need to put a lot of qualifiers on that. They say, oh, well, God is the God of hope, but he, he himself doesn't hope. He just gives hope to others. But no, God doesn't hope. And that that is the qualifications that Calvinists put on things. Uh, God was also surprised in Mark 8, he, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Wow, that's Mark 8. How about Luke 7? When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Wow, God marveled at him. This is surprise coming from God, and God is not ashamed of that as the settled viewers are. God planted a vineyard in Isaiah 5. Let's read that. And also made a wine press in it, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. God expected good grapes. He got wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? God is surprised here. More so in Zephaniah chapter 3, I said, Surely you will hear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off, despite everything for which I punished her, but they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. God says, Surely you will hear me. Surely you will. And they didn't. And God was surprised. What more could I have done for you, he says in that Isaiah passage. God is not ashamed of being hopeful and wanting his people to love him. Then he, when he's disappointed, he's not ashamed to show it. I know a lot of guys nowadays, you know, that really want a girl to like them. And then uh, the girl, she won't like the guy. And it's a little bit sad. And the guys will say, well, well you know, I, 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 I never liked her. I never liked her to begin with. And they lie, and they, they pretend that they're not hurt, and it's because they're a little bit embarrassed. Uh, God is not like that. God is not ashamed to show you his pain. And when people sin against him, it affects him. It hurts him. And when God is distraught by our sin and our, our wickedness, and he's, he's caught, he's like, what more could I have done for you? He's not ashamed of showing any of that. The settled viewers are ashamed of that. They're ashamed of the idea that God is surprised and that God changes and that God exists within time. There's a lot more to get to on this idea of God existing in time and did God create time? Is there time in heaven? There's there's so much more we could get to, but uh, we are out of time. I want to remind you again of the debate this Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Time. That'll be details on kgov.com. You can watch it live on kgov.com. Should be a lot of fun. Two really sharp debaters. 
I want to encourage you guys to check that out. Also, hey, we need your support here to stay on air. If you can, go to kgov.com, click on the store. You can make a donation. You could sponsor a show. You could purchase a product. All of those things go such a long way to helping us out and helping us stay on air. And it is such an encouragement when we see, you know, some orders come through. So if you guys enjoy the show, I would ask that you help us stay on the air. Hey, we will see you guys tomorrow for Theology Thursday with the late, great Bob Enyart. And then on Friday, I believe we're going back. I believe we are airing the first ever RSR show. That should be, that was back when it was RSF, which... Well, will I get bleeped for saying that? Who knows? Um, All right. I will see you guys next week. Uh, I want to get back into our uh, study on the canon of the Bible. We've been delaying that for a little bit, and I'm excited to get back into that uh, probably next week. Uh, We'll probably do a debate recap at some point. Should be a lot of fun. Hey, this is Dominic Enyart reminding you guys to do right and risk the consequences. May God bless you.